Welcome to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. You were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, and welcome back to WBAI. What a week. What a year, if you can believe it's only February right now. As of last night, just a few developments I want to give you about. As of last night, early today, final results of the Iowa caucuses, still not clearly known with a 97% of precincts reported. It's a very narrow uh, edge to Pete Buttigieg ahead of Bernie Sanders then trailed by Elizabeth Warren. Did you watch the State of the Union? Reggie, I'm sure you did as well. Uh, I want to do my impression of Nancy Pelosi right now. I'm just kind of astounded that, that one was legis- such a bizarre State I, of the Union. I agree with you. I that completely was, agree with you. Reggie. It had to have been produced by someone who was on crystal meth. It it honestly I felt so. like he was. Yeah. I mean, he was just touting his it, accomplishments. Yeah. You know, I want to hear something that unifies the nation. It uh, his attack on progressives consistently throughout Bizarre. the whole thing. Bizarre. It felt like a just like some warp edition of Oprah Winfrey and <laughs> and Murray Povich and, and and just with hate. My my guests, you can see why I love doing the show with Reggie. So uh, I want to, uh, you know, we're we're going to have a great show today. I want to uh, talk just a little more about some of what has been in the news. It was the mayor's seventh annual State of the City today. He outlined an agenda that supported small businesses, overhauling affordable his affordable housing plan to kind of reach lower incomes, improving high school graduation rates, investing in green energy. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, uh, and of course, one thing that really stood out for me that I enjoyed was seeing people like. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, boycotting the State of the Union. And, and, and frankly, given what you just said about this being bizarre, also seeing the reaction from a number of, uh, of members of, uh, of Congress. Uh, before I get to the guests, and by the way, you're, you're going to love the guests who are in studio today, New York State Assembly member Catalina Cruz and journalist and author Caitlin Moscatello, uh, the author of C. Jane Wynn. Uh, I just want to thank our listeners also for staying with WBAI uh, because, you know, I, I mentioned that the president attacked progressives. Well, I'm sure this would not be his favorite radio station if he even listens to anything or watches anything beyond Fox News. Uh, but you know our value. You tune in because we're non-commercial, we're non-corporate, progressive community radio. And I want to thank you for turning to WBAI today. We've been on the air for six decades, and if you're new to WBAI, I want to invite you to go to WBAI.org. Check out the diversity of program that we have. I'm a relative newcomer here. I've been here for just about two years. Reggie, I'm almost hitting my two-year anniversary here. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I've been a listener before that. I tune in like you because I want to hear a range of opinions, even if I don't necessarily agree with all the, uh, you know, all the content that people say. I want to hear that variety of opinions. So we just started our fundraising drive for the winter. And in the name of the show with Driving Forces, I'm just asking if you'd consider becoming a BAI buddy. And that means that you just have to give say $10 a month in support of the show and BAI. It's a sustaining contribution. I do it where it just gets right onto my credit card every month. And you might not think that's, you know, you might not think about it, but when you realize you listen to BAI for 10, 12 or 14 hours a week, that's hundreds of hours a year. So I hope you'll agree that, that, 
that that time is worthy of your support. And there are several easy ways where you can contribute. You could go to our pledge number, and that's 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. You could also go online at give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. Give to WBAI.org. And uh, Reggie, you once said the old school way. I know. I I bring it up. I bring it up. You can send a check. Yes. You can mail a check uh, to WBAI 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, uh, New York, 11217. Correct. Okay. I I stick with that now because some people, you know, I still have a checkbook at home. I do that too for a number of things. Right. So, uh, for our listeners, again, you can become a BAI buddy for $10 a month. People usually do it for $15 or $20. You will get a big, black, strong tote bag with a BAI, WBAI logo on it. Think about what's coming down the pike starting in March with uh, the, uh, the what do I call it, the nickel bag fee. I don't know what how we summarize it, but starting in March, when you get your paper bags at your supermarkets, because they're not going to, many supermarkets are not going to be able to use those plastic bags anymore. You can use your BAI tote bag. I do this whenever I go on vacation, actually. So again, 516-620-3602. You could even text us. Text WBAI to 41444. Okay. I want to get to my guests today. I'm very excited about this. New York State Assembly member Catalina Cruz and author Caitlin Moscatello. Want to give you just briefly, the assembly member was elected to serve the 39th district in 2018, one of the most diverse districts in the country. Uh, not my assembly member, my neighboring assembly member, Corona Elmhurst in Jackson Heights. She was born in Columbia, came to Queens at nine years old, lived in the country as an undocumented American for more than a decade. She's an attorney a leader for tenant protections, immigration reform and workers' rights, and previously was chief of staff to New York City Council Finance Chair Julissa Ferraras. So you just completed your first year in office. That's right. That's right. It was, it's been quite a ride this first year. <laughs> um, I think uh, the Senate and the Assembly were uh, in a little bit of a shock because we did 10 years worth of work in about six months. And so we are uh, gearing up again for not only our second year, but because the elections this year for the primary moved up for re-election all at the same time. Wow. And we are also joined by Caitlin Moscatello. She's a journalist and writer. She's covered gender and reproductive rights and politics. She's been reporting on the surge of female candidates since it began in early 2017. Uh, from her resume, she's been nominated for a National Magazine Award, received a Front Page Award, Planned Parenthood's Media Excellence Award, and was a UN Press Fellow reporting on women's health issues. Also the founder of Repro, a newsletter about reproductive rights legislation. She is the author of See Jane Win. Now, this was published last fall by Dutton Books, chronicles the stories of women who fought back after the 2016 presidential election and won election in crucial 2018 midterms. I just also want to tell our listeners, 
I came across this book while going through The Strand, and I picked it up immediately, did not even know that Catalina Cruz was in the book, was even more inspired to read it then, because I had been to a house party a few blocks from me when I first heard you speak and thought you were fantastic and genuine, and the word that everyone loves to use, authentic. And so I was really happy about this, wanted to have you guys in last fall. BAI had a little bump in the road when we were taken off the air at that point for just a few weeks, uh, but we're back, and so I'm really excited to have you two in the studio today. So, Caitlin, want to start with you. How did uh, these issues come onto, you know, how did this rise to the level of, I want to look into this, I want to do a book on this? Yeah. Well, I actually, I started working on the book pretty shortly after the 2016 uh presidential election. And so it was in February 2017. At that point, it was clear that the public temperature had changed. Uh, we had uh, organizations like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. They had been completely flooded with donations, um, many of them, the bulk of them from women after the 2016 election. And then, of course, there were the Women's March, uh, where in 60 countries around the world, including pretty remarkably Antarctica, um, you had people, millions of people taking to the street. Um, in the name of, among other things, gender equality. And I, at that point, there started to be these early reports that groups um, that support and or train uh, Democratic women running for office, so groups like Emerge America and Emily's List, um, that they were being uh, inundated with applicants from women who were newly interested in running for office. And not just inundated, I mean, really to the point where it was, you know, more than 10 times what they would normally see. And so to me, at that point, I mean, it was a, a rather, I think, bleak time in those few months um, after the election. And a lot of us were, there was a big question, of course, of what would a Trump presidency mean? And not just a Trump presidency, but also a GOP-controlled Senate and House at the time. Um, so there really wasn't any backstop in place for whatever they wanted to to potentially move forward with or what their agenda might be. And there were these women who I who were interested in running. And at that point, I thought... Well, maybe maybe this is the bright light in this. Like maybe this will be the lasting action. And so I was compelled to get on the phone with various groups and say, you know, who are some of these women? I'd love to speak with them. Um, I came to Catalina's race um, uh, a little bit after that, but was really following women throughout this whole journey and trying to be in the trenches with these first-time female candidates. Uh, to show, uh, one, what it is to campaign while female in the specific uh, political climate that we're in right now. Um, but then also to what ended up being this huge surge of women not only running for office, not only making it past their primaries, but then winning in the general. And we now have an, a record number of women, of course, in Congress, and that's gotten a lot of attention, and that's important, but also in our state legislatures, um, which is crucial, crucial to building a pipeline, but also crucial to issues like reproductive rights and voting rights and some of these other things that really impact um our Americans' lives, even on a, on a grander scale. So it was really following women through that journey. And then Catalina was one of four women um, running for different levels of office in different parts of the country who I thought represented part of this movement uh, of Democratic women. And so I was going to lead into your story. What was it about your story that you felt would be good to also channel into a book to be able to tell others that might inspire them to run? I mean... The truth. I think 
part of part of this process. I have to tell you, when I sat with Kaylin, when she approached me about the possibility of this, I I didn't think that I'd make it into the book because it's to me it's not necessarily a remarkable story. To me, it's my own story of survival, and I have to say, I was very I was very touched and a little. I don't know if the word is perplexed, but I was like, wow, those are the parts of the story that she chose to put in there. Because when I actually look at it and I detach myself and I recommend folks pick it up and read it, when I detach myself from my own um, ego, from my own mind, from the things that sometimes we don't want to put on paper or out there because they're hurt, they, they heard the idea of how poor I grew up and the things that I had to do or the memories. And the fact that Caitlin chose some of the rawest moments about my life to put in the book because they are truly representative of what it means to grow up female, poor, Latina, undocumented, and then make those decisions. I literally just sat there and I told her my story and some of my my worst and best memories. And she did her magic. And it's a fantastic, fantastic read. I, I have to tell you, I got the copy when I uh, when I came back from vacation from seeing my family in Colombia, and I find it in my office, and I could not put it down. I kept on. I was like, "I'm sorry, you guys are gonna have to answer the phones or do something," but I needed <laughs> to read it, and I just sat there and I cried because I ha- there are times when you don't realize how gigantic the leaps in your life are until someone else tells you. And then we both cried. (laughs) So then Catalina called me. I mean, there is something to this. I mean, I reported this book for almost two years. And a big part of this, of course, is is doing justice to these women's stories. So there were two sort of layers of it. One was this huge surge of women running and what that meant and what that could potentially mean going forward. But the other layer was intensely personal. And it was these four women, Catalina being one of them. And so none of them, you know, this is a journalistic work. They did not get to see this until it was printed, published, and out, right? And so I was on pins and needles wondering how they would react. And Catalina, I remember this, she called me, uh, and and she started crying, and then I started crying. <laughs> well, what's interesting is you really got into the minds. It's not like you just did a chapter where it goes through, here are all the steps, this is what they did. You get into people's mindset. In your chapter, what I had typed up was just some of your initial, you know, your initial thoughts about what if people find out, what will they think of me? And so what was, what was the moment you decided – to run for office. What was that defining moment? So I, I had it in the back of my head that one day maybe I, I would do it, but I would do it as a retirement plan because I needed to be ready because I was not quote unquote good enough just yet. And I had been approached by several people uh, when Julissa left her seat and uh, there were a, a shift in who the electeds were and, this, and my seat became vacant. I had three people approach me about running and I said no. And then a couple of things happened all at the same time. Um, we had, I, I already knew that we had, by then we already had President Trump and I had had this feeling of uh, impotence. Like I just knew that I needed to do more and that no matter how great of a lawyer or, or all the work that I was doing in a, in a government agency, it just 
didn't feel like enough because I felt so privileged to have lived the way I did, poor, undocumented, etc., and now be a lawyer, middle class, and someone who could fight back. And I felt like I wasn't doing that. And so my beloved council member, Danny Drum, comes to me on primary night on 2017 and says to me, with the day that the seat became empty, you have to run for this. I need you as a partner. I want someone who, because he's retiring in a year or so, who can carry out my legacy. And no one understands our community in the way that you do because of the things that you've lived through. And I kind of went home and I checked with mom and I checked with my (laughs) gut and I said, let's do this. It was not easy and it has not been easy. But had I not had um, my Danny drama, as I call him, all through the process, I don't think I would have made it in the same way that I did now. So, uh, Caitlin, how did... The campaigns, you know, what was a common uh, line of, you know, uh, the campaign thinking as far as a lot of the women you spoke with about the evolution saying, I'm going to take that step? What were some of the common themes you found? There was a lot of urgency. And I think this was actually one of the biggest shifts that we saw after the 2016 elections. Uh, There were fears after that election that people having watched Hillary Clinton, who was this qualified candidate who had maybe a much more traditional political resume, lose to Donald Trump, who many Americans knew at that point. I mean, here in New York, we sort of know him as this like sleazy real estate guy, but to a lot, and we still do, but, but a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people around the country knew him as the reality television star, right? And so it was um, Clinton's loss to him. I think there were concerns because one of the things that has historically kept women off the ballot is they don't think they're qualified enough. And another major thing is that no one encourages them to run. And Hillary Clinton's loss and Trump's win did two things. Um, it, in one way, and not to give Trump credit, uh, but it, it it washed away that it, it sort of very quickly helped women overcome this qualification barrier. Because I do think that there was a consensus among many women, I won't say all, but many of the women I spoke with, that was, well, if that guy can be president, well, I, I can definitely run for my city council or state legislature or for Congress. Um, and so I do think that that was sort of this bucket of cold water that was kind of dumped over women's head. And they said, all right, forget it. But the urgency, I think, was the was the biggest thing and the most common thread in, in the women that I interviewed and that I shadowed through this process. This feeling of I'm not waiting anymore. Maybe I was going to do this one day. Maybe someone would have asked me and they're not asking me now. But the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. And I have to jump in. And and that was really what I saw over and over again. So I want to let our listeners know that in a little while, you can start calling in. The number to call is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. You also noted in the book, this is, I'd love for you to elaborate on this. You wrote about the pivot from motherhood as a liability to motherhood as an asset. Yeah. And I really think that this was part of one of the big things we saw in, in women running and being successful in running in 2018 was that women ran as their authentic selves, that women really weren't putting themselves into this mold, I think, of what commonly, you know, women run for office. And it had been this you're fitting yourself into the mold of a traditional politician. Well, who is that? It's a white man in most cases. Right. And so women wearing 
you know, pantsuits and women talking a certain way and maybe not, certainly not bringing their young children to campaign events or maybe showing that part of their life. And I think in, in 2018, many of these women who ran, you know, they were new to, they were new to the political system or new to running to office. And I think there was sort of this consensus and Catalina can maybe speak to this as well. But this idea of, I'm not putting myself on, I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to put my real self on a shelf to like be this other person who who someone else thinks I should be. Um, I think part of what a big part of what made women successful is that they were willing to show their sort of, you know, the 360 degrees of who they are. And for some women who do have children, motherhood was a part of that. Um, there are studies that show the uh, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation has a, a pretty uh, lengthy study about this, that voters do cite concerns um, when women with young children run for office. And those concerns are, well, how will she juggle the demands of motherhood with the demands of her constituents and of this assuming, job? Assuming that men have no yes. family responsibility. Men, and this is the other part of this, is that men very much benefit from being fathers, no matter what age the children are. Because how do they see, right, right that's perceived as oh, well, he's responsible. Maybe to some people, the family life has a sense, they might per- perceive that as having some sort of something to say about morality. I mean, it depends where you're coming from. Um, and they assume, of course, that his wife, that his partner is home taking care of the children. So they don't have those same concerns. And so they, the advice very much used to be, and, and still sometimes is, you, Democratic strategists too, this isn't just Republicans, will tell women with young children maybe not to bring their children to campaign events or uh, certainly not have them sort of running around meet and greets or things like that. And I think you saw a lot of women just say, you know what, no, and that's not sustainable. I do want to do one shout out to uh, Luba Gretchen Shirley out on Long Island because she's the mother of two. She was the mother of two toddlers when she ran for Congress. She she happened to not uh, win her race, but she was super instrumental in she successfully petitioned the FEC to allow candidates to use campaign funds to pay for childcare. And I think in that it was a really great example of when more women run for office, how they paved the way for other women behind them to also run. She was the impetus for the state to actually change our law. And we're doing we we followed her steps. Yeah. I was going to ask, what were some of the challenges you faced in the campaign that you think uh, illustrate the challenges that many women face in running for office? Uh, I I mean, not just many women, but um, whatever known as quote unquote insurgent candidates. When I ran, um, I did not have the support of the Democratic Party, quote unquote machine. I did not have the support of the Working Families Party. Surprise, surprise. Um, I basically ran a good old-fashioned grassroots campaign. I had to quit working, uh, or actually at that time not look for a new job because I had just finished with with Jalissa as her chief. Um, I had to raise a lot of money, and that is actually key in, in, in understanding the difference between when a man runs and a woman runs, and especially a woman of color, it's very difficult to ask for money. Um, and for many of us, and I've had this conversation with many of my colleagues, it even when you become an elected, it's still difficult. I managed to raise a little bit over $250,000, but my um, the other candidate then, um, between all the money that was spent for her, it was almost half a million dollars. I one of the one of the I guess the the interesting or funny anecdotes that I have uh, that illustrates how difficult it is for women. It's you know when a male candidate shows up anywhere, whether it's at knocking on your door or at a debate, 
no one really cares how they're dressed. It's usually a suit and a tie. For me, it's all, it was a whole getup. I had to do my hair a certain way, my makeup a certain way. And not just because it's it, it, it's expected of a female candidate, but because I tried to not do that and people didn't recognize me. I put my hair down and some of our neighbors did not recognize who I was. And so it became a thing. It was like, okay, so we need to have the same look all the time. Um, I think the other thing is... Um, personal life. I'm extremely private about my personal life. And sometimes people would ask random questions like, well, does, does, is your husband okay with you going out so much? And uh, yeah, (laughs) I know. Or Caitlin um, is sighing. (laughs) Or, or, um, attributing for some of the people that, that had met him attributing his, uh, possible, not even knowing him, possible political beliefs to me as if this was 1920 when the wife must absolutely side with whatever the husband believes. And so it, it was just a very, very uh, weird situation at times. But at other times, because I was a woman, because I was a, I am a Latina, I had people flocking to help that would have otherwise not come out of the woodwork. I had a crew of moms out in Corona who are amazing named Marta and they would come out with their kids and they'd give out flyers. And I don't know if they would have done this for another type of candidate. I don't know. So you are listening to Driving for WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to take your calls. I'm joined in studio by Caitlin Moscatello, author of C. Jane Wynn, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics, and New York State Assembly member Catalina Cruz. We've got a caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What is on your mind today? Thank you. This is a uh, secret source from... uh a cafe called Ricky's Cafe, who uh, met with Catalina Cruz and uh, Caitlin Muscatello a long time ago regarding the book that they've written, See Jane Wynn. And I was wondering if I could just ask them, um, uh, how was this uh, experience in writing the book? First of all, (laughs) you're not fooling anyone. (laughs) I know it's you, Danny Drum. <laughs> oh, it's so good to hear your voice. Thank you so oh, much for calling in. Absolutely. Listen, it was an honor to be in the book. The book is so well written, and um, I'm such a, I'm so proud to be a part of it and um, to have been a part of um, your camp- campaign, Catalina, and um, also Caitlin meeting you and um, going to the the, I guess the, the book send-off uh, was just a great experience also. So I urge callers to get a hold of it. Uh, it's not just for women either. I think it's got a really good lesson about how you go out and get yourself uh, elected into public office. And I should say, I guess now, because we're shouting out Ricky's, I guess, but we one of what I think is one of the more touching scenes in the book was actually an interview that I did with uh, Catalina and Councilman Drum at Ricky's. Um, and we wanted to pick a neighborhood spot. And um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but it's certainly, I think, seeing the, the, the mentorship um, that Danny gave to Catalina throughout her campaign and also how Catalina is taking forward 
um, part of of Danny's legacy, Councilman's legacy. I I, I thought you have to read it, but um, they're both very open and very. Um, it's a very touching scene. I love you, Danny Drum. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> it was a pleasure uh, to meet you, Caitlin, and to talk about Catalina and to support Catalina during her campaign. So, Councilman, Councilman, quick question. What yes. was it about Catalina's story that inspired you? Her strength and determination to win. And uh, I look at people and so they say, I don't want to run for office, but they don't listen. And Catalina listened and did everything we suggested, and that's why she's an uh, assemblywoman right now. Uh, and I think also the fact of having uh, someone who's been so successful in life like Catalina who worked so hard. Um, her mother came here. Catalina was undocumented. She went to law school. Uh, she did, was very successful as an attorney. Uh, and then, of course, she went up to become an assembly member. And so it's a story for everyone to know that if you put your mind to something and you're determined, uh, you can succeed. And I think it's really important for our immigrant communities to hear that story, too. Council member, thank you so much for calling in. Thank, thank you, you my, Jeff. Thank you, my favorite council member. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, bye, folks. Bye. bye. So, again, that, that number to call is 212-209-2877. I want to take you back to a, a difficult moment, November 8th, 2016. Where were you both, and what was that moment like for both of you when uh, the election results came in? Oof. I was on my couch. Same. <laughs> I... um. I remember when I watched, I, I mean, when I, when the results came in, I called my goddaughter and I called her goddaughter because I can't describe her in any other way. It's this young woman who I met, who is uh, a DACA recipient. She is um, now an excellent lawyer. She's not graduated from law school and she, uh, and I had this urgent fear th that I needed to protect her because I could already see because she's being a young Muslim woman I knew they were going to come after her and I called her hysterical crying and I said they're going to come after you and we need to figure out how to protect you and I just felt despair I can't describe it any other way it just felt empty and I said what have we done um, and I think I was looking at it from a lens of how how will I make sense of this? So as a journalist, um, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I, I was in touch with various editors. We were, all the polls had been predict predicting, of course, a Clinton victory. And so the publications that I wrote for, some of them had reporters at the Javits Center. Um, I was home and I was uh, probably going to write something in the morning. And I remember same, being on my couch and... It was very early in the night when it became apparent that we that that it, Hillary Clinton was in trouble and that perhaps these polls had been very very wrong. Um, and I remember just texting with friends, texting with my sister, with my mother, um, being up at night. And then I remember making myself go to bed at a certain point because I thought I have to go to bed before they 100% call it because I'll never sleep. And I think I slept for two hours and then I woke up and I remember emailing uh, a couple of the editors I was working with at the time and they were up to, I think it was, you know, 530 in the morning and being like, okay, what are we going to say and how do we make sense of this? And it was those conversations just really quickly and no one slept for, you know, a few days. 
It was interesting walking around the next morning, and you could tell who stayed up overnight, and it yeah. just felt there was a, it was very quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and some of the streets that I walked on, and I thought people are really having the same reaction as me that they're just dumbfounded that yeah. this happened. Yeah. So let me check. I think do we have another caller on the line? We're just we're just checking on that right now. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, are the current landscape in 2020, what's interesting, the book notes that early on women vying for the White House in 2020 seemed to take cues from the women who ran in 2018. Yeah. How so? Well, I think we were seeing, you know, in 2018, what I was saying before is that women were really running. And I know the term authentic is so overused and so whatever. But the fact that, that women were really running as their true selves and they were also, I think, you know, you see now, I think, Elizabeth Warren doing the selfie lines, right? And mm-hmm. she's doing Facebook, you know, they're doing uh, Instagram videos. And some of it comes off a little wonky, right? So I do think, I don't know if I wrote about this particular thing in the book, but right, like right when Elizabeth Warren uh, announced her presidency, then there was sort of, everyone always says, oh, you know, people vote for the candidate they want to have a beer with. And she's sort of like in her kitchen, she grabs a beer and it's like a little much. But I do think that... Um, I do think that the connection that that women who ran were able to have by talking about their real life experience is something that we saw. We continue to see it now, I think, with Elizabeth Warren. And I think we saw it certainly when there were numerous other women um, in the field. And I know, obviously, Klobuchar is still in the field. But, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren is constantly talking about when she was a working mother, when she was going to school, when she was going to that commuter college. And really, I think, bringing her personal life into it in a really big way. You do see her talking about motherhood and being a working mother, which I think speaks to a lot of people in this country. So, and if I'm correct, you were out in Iowa this week? And I I was out in Vegas in Nevada. Oh, why did I think you were in Iowa? Uh, Probably because you tweeted a lot. Well, (laughs) because it's the the caucus that just happened. But the uh, Nevada one is happening. They're doing early voting this year uh, from the 15th to the 18th. So I went out to, to help out. And uh, supporting Warren. That's right. And what was it about her story that brought you over there? So um, there were a couple of things. Um, I think for me, the ideals from a lot of our candidates, from 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 at least two or three of them, are very similar. And so for me, it came down to execution. After having worked in government for on and for on and off for ten years, I understand how hard it is to pass a law to implement the law and to make sure that it's working correctly. And the same thing with budget and money. And so for me, having someone with clear plans that are realistic, knowing how government functions, was key. I didn't want to fight for someone who was just going to sell me hopes and dreams because hopes and dreams are beautiful. But at the end of the day, we need much more to turn this country around. And so I chose her for that. But on on an emotional level... One of the first roundtables, meetings, or however we want to call them, that she had was with a group of dreamers. And for me, that showed me that, like me, she cares much more about helping everyone, regardless of whether they can vote for her or not. Because these are young, undocumented people who have a political voice, but in reality, no political power because they can't vote. And whose lives are in jeopardy And whose lives are in jeopardy. And she chose to meet with them first. And so to me, that was, that said a lot about her priorities. And I was sold. In, In talking about DACA, obviously, the Supreme Court should be 
rendering a decision sometime this spring. Mm -hmm. I've heard it could be as early as next month. My colleague says it could be by June. We're thinking June, yeah. What happens between now and then? Or is it really just wait and see? Or, 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 you know, and what can you do as a legislator to keep the attention on this? I mean, one of the things that I've done is continuously talk about it because I think if sometimes we as, I don't say Americans because America is a continent, but as folks in the United States, we get complacent. Something happens, we talk about it for two minutes, maybe send out a tweet, and then that's it. But we need folks in positions of power to continuously remind us that, you know what, we're not okay. We have not been okay for three and a half years, and unless we truly change this, we're not going to be okay. And then for me, it's I'm hoping that the Supreme Court's going to do the right thing, but if they don't, what then? If they don't, we have to prepare undocumented young people, the dreamers, the DACA recipients, for the next steps. Does that mean uh, protecting them from deportation? Does that mean getting them legal services? Does that mean protecting their families? But if the answer is yes, DACA stays, that still doesn't give them permanent status. And so we can't stop fighting for them. We have to get us a president, get us a Congress that is democratically uh, that is democrat controlled so we can see real true change that these folks need the number to call is 212-209-2877 caitlin you make a good point in the book where you talk about you know you're focused on women who had been victorious but you raised the question, Democrats faced another challenge. What do you do with all the women who lost? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about that and what's happened since? Well, I think something we know is that you know some of the women who lost are running again or they're running for maybe a different office. Um, and so that's, of course, very exciting, right? So no matter – even if the women who don't necessarily win their elections, I think it's important that they continue to uh, – they continue to get support. And on top of it, these are women who now have a whole bunch of things in their in their toolbox that they did not have going into their last bid. So they have an, uh, a donor base, a volunteer base, an email list. They know how to fundraise. They've, ca- they've done those meet and greets. People in their districts know their name or there at least would be a much higher name recognition, which is a huge advantage, right? So um, I think that you're, you are seeing women um, run again. You know, we're seeing Gina Ortiz-Jones is running for uh, the same seat, uh, congressional seat down in Texas that she very, very narrowly lost uh, in the last election. Uh, you have Amy McGrath uh, in Kentucky. So she ran for a U.S. House race. Now she's taking on uh, Mitch McConnell uh, for his Senate seat uh, in Kentucky. Um, and so you are seeing some of these women run again. And, and, and I think that that's really exciting and also speaks to the importance of just, you know, again, building that pipeline. And the hope is we'll, we'll hear more from Stacey Abrams. That- and I think we will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, who's still doing really important work right oh, now, too. Com- I mean, she, she's registered uh, her her uh, voter registration efforts are so, so crucial and so important. And, and, and she's certainly out there supporting candidates as well, which is just great. So one of the other observations that I had throughout the book was that, you know, and frankly, I think this happens with a lot men and women when you're initially considering running is there is self-doubt. Can I make a difference or am I, you know, am I, you know, am I worthy? Can I, and I'm curious, when it comes to women versus men, you find it's much more disproportionate that women have a lot more self-doubt in whether they can – I mean, it's not just going up against incumbents, but just you know because of so many barriers they faced in their lives. Or am I asking I a question? I think fear very- of support, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, there – 
you know, one of, there is sort of this gendered stereotype of women not being as confident as men. And I, and I think that a lot of the women who ran were actually incredibly confident. It takes a ton of guts to run for office. Having seen this and been in the trenches with, uh, with Catalina and, um, Abigail Spamberger, who's another char- uh, character in the book. I mean, she's a congresswoman. Uh, now Tennessee representative, uh, London Lamar. She's the youngest black woman in the Tennessee state legislature. And Anna Escamani, um, who, uh, is in the Florida state legislature, um, who ran a very bold, progressive campaign in a purple district and won by a landslide. Um, you know, I think that these women all did have, it does take confidence to run. And so I don't want to sort of fall into that gender stereotype of like, oh, there are these like women who just doubt themselves and they don't think they can do it and, and whatnot. But I, I do think that there was a big question of, well, is anyone going to support me? Are they going to financially support me? Will I just sort of be lingering out there by myself? I mean, I did have a woman that I was initially one of the many women that in the very beginning of this that I was speaking with, and I don't name her in the book, and I say why, and it's because she, after nine months of us talking, she kind of stopped returning my calls at a certain point, so I decided to respect her privacy and her wishes and that, and she dropped out of her race, and she dropped out of her race because she did not get support, not from Democratic groups, not from people in her community. She went to some of the trainings that they were doing with women who were running for office, and after the training, she just felt like for her, she she could not get there, and it was it was incredibly frustrating for her, and she decided, I'm out. I'm not going to do this this time around. Um that was the exception. I did not see that often, but it did happen. And I do think that the that fear of putting yourself out there and not being supportive was maybe more than the actual fear of can I do this? So I've got. I don't know, Kelly. Would you does, would you agree with Look, that? Look, uh, uh, yes, partially. But yeah. I will say, um, your entire life becomes fair game. Yeah. Everything about your life, who you are, who you've dated, who you haven't dated, where you worked, who's giving you money, who's your friend, who's your enemy, where do your parents have every single thing about your life is out there. It's very difficult. Did you prepare for that? Did you expect that that was going to happen? Yes, but I don't think I, I, fu- I fully understood and grasped how it was going to be until I was in it. And and that part I knew because Julissa used to tell me I'm gonna I can tell you everything about how how this is gonna go but until you go through it you don't go through it you don't understand but I try to prepare as best possible but one of the things that that many of us do struggle with and I I I still struggle with it is imposter syndrome I often ask mm-hmm. myself um, when are they gonna figure out that I don't belong here and um, I will say kind of God over that a lot <laughs> the day one um <laughs> and as i get to do more and more really good work in the legislature um it, that imposter syndrome gets smaller and smaller and smaller because i am starting to understand this is exactly where i needed to be and when it needed to happen and you know and i think a lot of women um are going to struggle in one way or another with that part because running for office is a likability uh, contest, unfortunately. Like, who likes you and, and how much do they like you? So, uh, you know, I was going to ask another question, but because you mentioned likability, I do want to go to something I talked with Caitlin about because it is in the book, and that's why I encourage everyone to read to the end of the book. Uh, you got an interview with Hillary Clinton for the book. Yeah, Can she was the last little, interview I did, yeah. Talk a little about her insight. Yeah, well, so I spoke with um, Hillary Clinton. It was the, gosh, it was right before I handed in the book. So this was uh, January 2019, so just 
about a year ago now. And um, at the time, we knew that there were multiple women who were entering the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. Um, And I was asking her, having, you know, now with multiple women running in that primary, um, but also having seen the surge of women who ran and won, if she was hopeful, if she was optimistic. And I shouldn't conflate those two, because I would say she was hopeful, but she was not necessarily optimistic. And I think she was very, very wary of some of the longstanding uh, barriers, yes, but also the the misogyny and the sexism that women do continue to face when they run for office. And I really try, I, I mean, I, I was careful not to sugarcoat this in the book. I don't want to make it sound like everything changed and everything's easy and great now because all these women have ran and, and they've won. I mean, we still have only 29% of our state legislatures are, are female. Uh, women still account for less than a quarter, just under a hair of a quarter of Congress. Um, so we have a very long way to go. And, you know, there are some very real things that we know, for instance, and now there's numerous studies that, that back this up. When I did the book, there was sort of one big study and another one has come out since then. But female candidates, the amount of of trolling that they experience online and not just the trolling, but the nature of it um, in the the sexual sexual the sexualized nature of it, but sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Mm violence that these women face. And and I don't want to say that men don't get criticized online and when men run for office no one ever says anything bad, but it is not like this. It is not it is not to the point where women where I mean you have women who really fear for their lives, they fear for their safety, they fear for their kids' safety. I had to get I had to get a police escort on the night of election because I got a death threat the night before from someone, and so I'm very familiar with this. It's it was insane. Um, nothing came of it, but just the fear of it alone, um, you know, and 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 not just the uh, the sexist part of it, but for those of us who are immigrants, it's the xenophobic part of it because the death threat that I received was because the day before some. Samantha B did a piece on my election where she called me the dreamer who's going to piss off. Uh, um, oh, sorry, bad word. <laughs> There's a list of words we can't say. Who's going to make Trump very mad? And all of a sudden, I started just receiving horrible messages, including one particular one from weirdly someone that had my name, also named Catalina, or maybe that was her fake name. Um, and and I got death threats. And, you know, as an elected, I continue to get them. I've had to have the state police involved uh, when we pass driver's licenses. So it's like it, it's this idea that if you deviate from what certain people want they think it's okay and i and i firmly believe that it's our current president who has emboldened a lot of these folks they make they think it's okay to come out and threaten an elected official or anyone in general simply because they don't believe in the same things what was the most surprising unexpected thing you learned about campaigning when you were campaigning and then to caitlin afterwards when you were researching the book, what was the most surprising revelation that you had? The most surprising revelation. I think all of it. 
for me, I mean, I had never done first this. First time candidate. Yeah, I was a first time candidate. I mean, the hours were ridiculous. I think I was, I, I lost like 20 pounds. Um, I would often forget to eat breakfast. Uh, I had to literally have my staff put it in the calendar and remind me to eat breakfast. I barely, if, if my family did not come campaign, I wouldn't get to see them for all those months. It was so expensive. There you go. That's the part that I didn't expect. I expected that it was going to be expensive to raise money for the campaign. I never thought about my own personal finances in the hit that they would take. Uh, my credit card, my credit score took a, took a dive. Now it's, you know, back where it was before, but it took a dive. I went through all my savings, maxed out my credit cards and had to live, um, on very meager means and still show up fully made up with great clothes and makeup to debates and act like everything was fine. That's, that was surprising now that I think about it. I'm having I'm I'm sitting here sketching on a piece of paper because I'm having trouble picking one thing as well. I mean, I think that's something that uh, is important in, in terms of how I looked at this book is I really went into this as someone who writes about gender. So while I do write about the intersection of gender and politics, you know, I'm not this this political walk like I'm not I don't I view things through how does this impact people? How does this impact women? What does this look like in their lives? And what does this say, I think, about where we're going? And so there were parts of this process that as a journalist, as a reporter, that were very new to me. I had not been on the campaign trail. I'm not someone who's been covering political campaigns for a decade or anything like that. Um, I will say that the some of the fundraising uh, challenges that women overcame did surprise me as well. I mean, something that I heard, and this was actually from Krish Vignaraja, who ran uh, for, for governor of Maryland. And she was a uh, woman of color. She was 37 at the time. She had an eight-month-old. She was running for governor in a crowded primary. Um, she was against, she was the only woman in, I think, a race of, I want to say it was eight people. And she would make calls to high-level uh, Democratic donors. And she told me that on one of these calls, she was speaking with a, uh, a very high-level, successful, prominent uh, uh businesswoman um, who was known for giving. And when she was speaking with her and asked her for a donation, the woman said, well, you know, I have to I have to talk to my husband about it. And then she called up some of the, you know, Silicon Valley donors who were known for giving to Democratic candidates. And, um, and in that angle, because she was running against multiple men in this primary, she did position herself. One of the things she did to position herself differently was to say, look, I'm a woman and I do bring something different to this race. And let me explain that to you. And let me explain to you why I think we do need more women in office and the impact on what that can be. And she had uh, one this this one donor took great offense to that. He shut her down. Um, and and basically, you know, did not donate and, and didn't want to hear anything more of it. And he said he was offended that she had brought that up. Um, and so I think the degree to which some people either don't recognize maybe their own biases and their own sexism, even people who think they're even people who consider themselves Democrats or consider themselves very supportive, um, seeing those really come into play. I actually do have one other story about this was I was down in Virginia. Abigail Spamberger is another main character in the book. She's now obviously Congresswoman Spamberger. And I was at a very early meeting meet and greet. Um, or it was like September 20, uh, gosh, what it have been 2017. And uh, this man came up to me, I had my notebook, and I would sort of hang in the back and just really look at the scene. And this this man, I would say he's maybe, I don't know, maybe in his 60s, came up to me and he told me I looked like a very smart girl, which, thank you, very flattering, but I'm in my <laughs> mid 30s. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
told me all about his successes and what he did for a living and where he went to college and all these and all these things. And, uh, you know, he gave me a list of, of, of um, it, it, it so happened to be a list of all male journalists who I, who I know, either know or have, of course, read uh, very much over, over the years. Uh, and then he told me, you know, I, I should, if I really want to get serious about this book, I need an angle. He had all sorts of advice for me. Um, and I just sort of stood there for this. But then finally, I kind of had enough. And so Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, had actually just come out. And so I said, well, you sound you sound well read. Uh, what did you think of Hillary's book? Because he had told me I'm a huge donor, huge Democratic donor, donate so much money, and I have so many houses, and I'm so successful. And really, without, when I tell you without, it almost, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but it's this is exactly how it happened. Without any pause, he... He just sort of looked away from me and he goes, no, 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 I don't need I don't need to read the perspective of some angry woman. And I and here he was the big Democratic donor, right? The guy he's talking about you know, how much he loved Bill Clinton and how he's been there. And he's just, you know, opening up his wallet for everyone. And I just thought, you know, this is really what these women are up against and even within the Dem- even within the democratic party there's a lot of sexism within the democratic party i mean i think we're seeing a lot of it right now and i think one of my one of my continuing concerns for 2020 and and you know as as a journalist it is not my job to tell people who to vote for who to support but one of one of a concern i do have is that women in this country have never had more political capital than they do right now at this moment and i am concerned that a media that is dominated by mostly white male pundits and by mostly white male political uh, uh, columnists, two thirds of congressional press passes in this country go to men. And this is not against you. I'm, I'm, I'm staring not, I'm at not, you as I'm saying this. I'm not taking um, and, but not just that, but strategists and most of the people who really are the driving forces of, of, of how we talk about politics, how people ingest information. A lot of these people, I worry that women are going to be convinced to vote for someone who looks like those people and who sounds like those people when they have the opportunity to do otherwise. And that's not to say that everyone should go vote. You know, I, I believe in voting for the best candidate, but I do I do worry about this electability question and this likability question and women being talked out of voting for another woman because they're convinced by a lot of men that that, that a woman can't win. So unfortunately, we're almost out of time, and I want to give you each about 30 seconds to let our listeners know how they can learn more about you, how they can uh, get a copy of the book. So uh, Catalina, I'd love to start with you. So if anybody wants to follow me on social media, I am at Catalina Cruz NY. Uh, it's just like my name spells C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A-C-R-U-Z-N-Y, and that's across all platforms. Uh, you can... Uh, sign up to our email list just send us an, a message we do a lot of community events we're fighting for amazing things up in albany we're going to need all the support that we can get so look us up um and i am on twitter uh i'm at uh at kate mosk so it's at c-a-i-t-m-o-s-c and you can follow me there um and i'll you know post articles and everything like that as i write them and as they come up and I want to let our listeners know again uh, that I did talk about becoming a BAI buddy. So I am going to give you a gift. I have a copy of C. Jane Wynn. I will buy another copy if someone does call in and become a BAI buddy during this show because it's signed by Caitlin. I'm going to ask the assembly member to, saw, to autograph it as well. Uh, the number to call to pledge is uh, 212 uh, 209. No, no, oh, no, wait, no, no, that's the other one. No, Sorry. No, I was distracted. 
516-620-3602 or go online to give to wbai.org. Become a BAI, buddy. $10 a month, you'll get the tote bag. And if you do it in the name of the show, Driving Forces, I will let Andrea know uh, that I'm going to give her my copy of C. Jane Wynn. It is a wonderful book. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Read it until the end. And also what Councilman Danny Drum said, it's not just about women in politics. You really do learn a lot about how campaigns run. And for me, you know, it gave me some flashbacks to running uh, uh, with a mayoral campaign in 2009. So it was a little tough to get through for me at points when I read about the long hours. I want to again thank my two in-studio guests, New York uh, State Assembly Member Catalina Cruz and author and journalist Caitlin Moscatello and also our surprise caller, New York City Council Member Danny Drum. Thanks again for listening to Driving Forces. Please stay tuned for the news. 